I'm John, and today I'm speaking with Magnus Vending. Uh, Magnus is somebody whose writings I encountered a while ago, uh, specifically his writings on veganism and anti-speciesism, but he also writes more broadly about topics like consciousness and uh, more recently suffering-focused ethics, which is the title of his new book. Uh, today we sort of start off our conversation talking about veganism and how we live our lives as vegans. And then we get into some of the nitty-gritty uh, utilitarian thought experiments and utilitarian thought. And uh, by the end, I sort of pose some questions to him that I have as uh, a more creative, artistic type who is still interested in altruism and reducing suffering. And so this is a really great conversation for me, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Thank you. All right, Magnus Vending, thank you for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, John. Yeah. Um, so, Magnus, the first question I always ask when I interview people for this podcast uh, has nothing to do with uh, any of the stuff we'll talk about today, but it just helps me fill out my mental model of who my guest is. And that is basically just, uh, what is your coffee drinking life like? Do you drink coffee at all? Uh, how often do you drink coffee? What are your coffee preferences? That type of thing. Well, that was an easy question, I'm afraid. Uh, I don't actually drink coffee at all. I tried it a few months ago and it didn't really work out. I tried it because I saw some videos by Michael Greger, whom I'm sure you know of, mm -hmm. from nutritionfacts.org. And he, uh, there were apparently some benefits to coffee drinking, but uh, they didn't seem to apply to me, or at least I couldn't tolerate it so well. And actually, he also did some videos about certain people who apparently don't go well with coffee. Interesting. Okay. Um, this is the first time anybody's responded uh, as a non-coffee drinker. So it's, was it the, like the effects of it that you don't like or uh, the taste of it that you didn't like? Uh, well, I mean, I don't mind so much about taste. I mean, I can tolerate most things if I think they're healthy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the effects weren't so good. Uh, I mean, I, I think it, probably messed up my um, circadian rhythm too much. Interesting. <laughs> uh, I mean, by day I'm a, a coffee professional, so I like, uh, I'm, you know, the exact opposite of this uh, spectrum. But, uh, wow, that's interesting. Uh, so uh, do you drink tea or any sort of like, uh, it, there's no, no like stimulating beverage in your life? I do drink tea, but uh, I usually stick with chamomile. So it's, it's mild stuff. <laughs> okay you probably get excellent sleep but <laughs> uh yeah it's decent yeah <laughs> well um so we're going to talk a lot about uh you know suffering focused ethics and veganism and uh you know utilitarianism today um, and i wanted to sort of you know start off i guess with veganism and i know previously you've said that uh anti-speciesism is in your mind a more important cause which I agree with, I think, you know, because you're saying this is largely due to uh, 
it being sort of something that encompasses veganism. And uh, do, do you still resonate with the, the label of vegan? Like, do you, are you a vegan yourself? Yeah, I mean, I definitely say that I am a vegan. Although, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily the most, what can I say, strategic thing to focus on in a sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and a lot of this is, it's just complicated by human psychology, you could say. The way in which, you know, vegans are perceived, I think it's, it's often something that, I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult landscape to navigate really, because of course it's, it's worth being honest and just speaking directly, but at the same time, it's also, it's, it's worth being mindful of the way that people will receive veganism. And, and I mean, it's actually suboptimal for a few reasons. So one of them is, you know, the, the, the stereotype of someone who is just, you know, a nagging person. That's one thing. But another thing is that veganism can also have this, it, it can give associations. I mean, a problem with it is that it can make the, the entire cause that we're fighting for seem like a matter of, it, it reduces it down to a matter of personal consumption. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very big problem, right? So, and, and I think it's not as though one can't state that, that veganism isn't about that, but it's, I think alternative framings such as, yeah, the, the anti-speciesist framing, it, it makes it more clear that this is a serious political and ethical issue. And it's not a matter of personal consumption. So that's one of the reasons I would favor an anti-speciesist approach. And yeah, another one is that, as you alluded to, it is just much more broad in its scope. It, it does encompass, you know, all non-human animals, whereas veganism is entirely silent on the plight of wild animals. Mm -hmm. So um, over here in Los Angeles, uh, veganism is kind of getting pretty popular. And I mean, it's being rebranded more as like plant-based. And um, I gotta say, like the people that I see uh, who are interested in this, there's no real sense of altruism there. And uh, so it's like kind of loud, non-altruistic people who are promoting this diet or this lifestyle. But then, um, you know, I see people like you or Brian Tomasic and like, it's a lot more kind of like quiet and concretely oriented and very calibrated. Um, and so I'm just curious, uh, as somebody who is a little bit more in tune with the finer points of this, uh, you know, I, I've had somebody that's very smart critique me for uh, being vegan just on nutritional grounds. And I mean, we both seem plenty healthy, but uh, is this anything that you feel you've had to give special attention to? I mean, you mentioned being sort of health oriented with coffee, uh, but I mean, like, is something like phospholipids or, uh, you know, amino acid uh, uh, profiles in your protein, is that anything that like worries you or do you is it just something that's been easy for you well that and uh, those two things that you mentioned i haven't paid much attention to that but something that i have actually been paying a bit of attention to lately is when it comes to vitamin b12 you know the big uh, the big issue i mean and, and pretty much universally acknowledged issue um at least among responsible uh, medical professionals yeah, when it comes to veganism, because uh, as you know, the, the vegan diet does not provide that. But the, the, the issue is that actually there is not, the information about vitamin B12 is not very good 
because it turns out that there are actually different forms of vitamin B12. And some of those, so like there's apparently the most popular one is called methylcobalamin. Mm -hmm. uh, but apparently that's not as studied as the, the cheaper one that's called cyanocobalamin. And there are some doubts as to whether methylcobalamin, or at least some people, like including uh, Michael Greger I mentioned earlier, he actually, he recommends cyanocobalamin and raises some doubts as to whether methylcobalamin is even, uh, whether everyone can absorb that probably. So I have, I have actually recently changed and, and now uh, take cyanocobalamin, whereas I used to take the methylcobalamin. And uh, so I, um, because I'm not sure whether, it'll be interesting just to see whether, whether this will make a difference because apparently it's supposed to take some months before things really change. But uh, I, I think that's certainly something that's worth reading up on and for, for vegans to try to experiment with that themselves. I mean, vitamin B12 supplements are very cheap, so it might be worth trying uh, both. Actually, there are more uh, variants than just those I mentioned, but, but yeah, I mean, from I, I would tentatively recommend vegans to try out cyanocobalamin if they haven't, see if it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. I also take cyanocobalamin. I, I feel like maybe I've encountered that same research. Um, and it's, it's worked for me. Uh, so uh, on the same sort of nutritional question, uh, I guess basically, you know, uh, people have criticized vegan diets for, or like people who follow this lifestyle because they will use replica meats or, uh, you know, various like uh, foods that are attempting to recreate meat. And I'm wondering if this is something that you uh, do yourself or like, I mean, there's something that's inelegant about it, but I'm just like, it doesn't really matter if you're eating a, a soy-based meat to me. Uh, but I mean, it just seems like a, a common critique of vegans. Yeah, I guess now we're already getting somewhat into the nitty gritty of, you know, the utilitarian thinking, because there are really many considerations when it comes to this. So one obvious one, and I mean, I can say I pretty much never eat that, but that's for health reasons primarily, I would say. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just not something that I, I, I do try to eat. Um, yeah, a fairly healthy diet. So, I mean, that, and, and I think that's one reason that's also, I mean, if, if you are someone who is aspiring to be a, a good consequentialist or an effective altruist, you should uh, try to eat a, a diet that enables you to really, uh, you know, perform at, at the highest level, uh, at least mentally. So, but, and, and so therefore it, it is a, you could say it, it is a reason to avoid those products or at least try to, to reduce the consumption of that. But uh, another kind of reason one could raise is that maybe it has an influence on our minds to, to eat products. Like for example, if, if we eat products that we call um, like fake chicken or whatever, right? That perhaps that can serve to, in, in subtle ways, perhaps serve to reinforce the, the view of, of chickens as food, even though we are not actually talking about actual chicken flesh. And I, and I think that is, I mean, that is a, valid consideration, but then you also have counter considerations that, for example, you don't want it to be, I mean, it's, it's 
the kind of thing that's I mean, so the, the consumption of, of animal products is pretty much the norm at this point. It's, it's the standard thing. And so if, if we can replace that with something that's, you know, far less harmful, then that would be a good thing. And, and promoting that would, would also be a good thing. So that's, that's kind of a counter consideration that could, you know, su suggest that, well, maybe you'd even want to support this actually, so that we can have more of these options. And so in, in terms of those two considerations, which one weighs the highest? I mean, that's, that's difficult for me to say, actually. It's, it's, like, uh, it's, it's quite complicated in that way, but in, I, I would generally just try to avoid it uh, for health reasons, primarily. I suppose going through that sort of mental calculus of you know, which is more important can sort of be trumped by you know, going one level up to anti-speciesism and you know, considering something that has scale built in. Um, on the same question, um, I, I guess I'm just curious if you have any sort of feelings about uh, like the cultured meat uh, movement that's coming. Like, do you, like I, I've spoken to somebody who is a meat eater and he was like very bothered by this concept of lab grown meat. And I think it's kind of weird. Like there's some sort of uncanny valley element to it, but um, it, I kind of was angry at this person because it's like, you, how can you eat meat regularly and be so bothered by this idea of trying to, you know, uh, deal with factory farming. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting question that you raise. And I think it is, my impression is that some animal advocates are perhaps in some ways overhyping it. I mean, I very much hope that it, it has the, the potential that, that some people think it has, but it's, it's not really obvious to me. So, I mean, there are, it's, it's quite unclear whether most people will be willing to, um, yeah, buy it and, and consume it. And especially compared to, you know, plant meats, plant meats, which are also at the moment, you know, seeing a lot of uh, growth in, in terms of, of the sales and the innovation that's going on there. So it's, it's not really clear to me how, big a factor it's, it's going to be. I mean, I do think it's, I do think it makes sense to invest in it and to try it, you know, to have kind of an, a pluralistic approach in terms of our strategies. And uh, I think it, it does, yeah, it, it does make sense to invest in it, but I think it might also be, um, yeah, I mean, we should be careful that it won't end up being like a, uh, false promise. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of effort to go into something that we don't really have that firm uh, footing on. Uh, one last on veganism and then we'll maybe move on to anti-speciesism uh, more broadly. But uh, do you mind just if I ask what your sort of day-to-day -day eating looks like? Well, it's, it's very healthy actually. So <laughs> I, I pretty much eat three similar meals every day and they are like cooked meals mm -hmm. so i i do meal prepping and then i cook some very big meals uh, with you know all the the healthy foods that that you generally see recommended like broccoli and sweet potatoes and also um, beets so that kind of stuff that's supposed to and, and also i also try to eat uh, 
blueberries, which are also supposed to be very healthy. Mm -hmm. Brain-derived nootropic factor or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, I, I'm sort of toying with this idea of making like uh, an ebook called like the Vegan Futurist Cookbook. And it's just kind of like a playful name to sell books if I ever get around to it. But, um, you know, I'm like thinking it should be more like the negative utilitarian cookbook uh, or something like that. So I'm curious how the utilitarian uh, mind conceives of eating. But um, so anti-speciesism, uh, you're a big proponent of because of the sort of scope of it and, you know, scope neglect is uh, a common issue that you see in, uh, I guess, like the standard model of veganism. Um, can you talk a little bit about scope neglect and why you think uh, anti-speciesism is the better cause? So, yeah, I mean, so specifically when it comes to um, like animal advocates today, you could say that the, the scope neglect that is at work there is that we fail to see, we fail to really appreciate the numbers of animals in the wild. And it's, it's really not at all intuitive. So, you know, sometimes a good analogy might be something that most animal advocates do very much appreciate, namely that when it comes to companion animals, for example, uh, dogs and cats who live in shelters, the, the number of cats and dogs is very small compared to the number of, of farm animals, especially uh, chickens and, and also fish on factory farms. So it makes a lot of sense if you are, and, and of course they're also treated followers, uh, the latter group. So it, it makes a lot of sense that you'd want to invest your resources into helping farm animals compared to companion animals. But the thing is that a similar argument can actually be made with respect to wild animals when we look at the numbers there. Um, of course, one can debate the, um, the quality of life in the two cases, but certainly when it comes to the numbers, there are orders of magnitude more wild animals than there are farm animals. And that is something that we don't really appreciate uh, so much, you know, at an intuitive level. It, it does take some, or can you say, stepping back and, and really reflecting to, to feel the power of, of that consideration. Of course, then people will tend to say things like, well, this first, perhaps first, the, the uh, idyllic objection, which is that, well, aren't wild animals doing pretty well generally? And um, the, um, the reply there is that unfortunately, that's not really the case. So if, if you look at, at wild animals, most of them happen to live very, very short lives because they are brought into existence in a condition where there are a, a lot of say eggs that are hatching and a lot of new beings emerging, but in a condition where only very, very few beings can actually survive because there aren't enough resources, like there isn't enough food for all of them. So the vast majority of wild animals actually live extremely short lives where they just happen to be born and then die a, if they're sentient, presumably painful death soon thereafter. Um, and, and then another objection might be, well, can we actually do anything about this? I mean, in, in the case of factory farming, 
it seems quite clear what we can do, but it, it seems less clear in the case of wild animals. And this is actually something that the organization Animal Ethics, they have made quite a few videos on, on this that addresses that objection at length. And perhaps we can link to, to some of those below. But uh, yeah, in brief, one can say that it's, in, in, in one sense, it's perhaps, it's, it's uncertain what we can do about it, like eventually uh, on a large scale, but even, even if we won't be able to do more than what we can do today, it's still the case that actually the kinds of things that we do today are already like in, in terms of policies in relation to uh, like environmental policies, they are actually already quite significant in terms of, of the impacts that they have on wild animals. And so this is very much something that we should also like to take into consideration. And also lastly, it's worth noting that it doesn't have to be one thing or the other. I mean, we can, we can and should pay attention and, and you know, um, try to advocate on behalf of both farm animals and, and wild animals. Mm. Um, in terms of the, the scope question, uh, a thought experiment I see uh, sometimes uh, on places like Less Wrong is the sort of like speck in the eye versus torture problem. Are you familiar with this? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the idea being, uh, you know, is one person being tortured, uh, you know, any different from a gazillion people uh, with a little bit of, you know, dust in their eye. Do you think that this is a good thought experiment or do you think that's kind of a disservice just in the sort of absurdity of it? Well, I mean, I, th I guess it's, it's a fair thought experiment, but the question is what it, I mean, I, so in my view, it's, it's a fair thought experiment that actually hints at the, what can you say? The, the implausibility of certain aggregationist views. Mm -hmm. And and the um, what can you say the the comparability of different kinds of, of suffering in an evaluative sense. So, I mean, my view is that there actually that that you can't actually add up a large number of small discomforts to make them be worse than very extreme suffering. But I, the aggregation is just the issue of like how are you ever gonna quantify this yeah or even well or or just even the notion that that this is something that i mean so even if you have some kind of quantification algorithm i would say but why should it apply you know across these very different kinds of i mean one you can barely even characterize a suffering right and the other is like the most intense suffering imaginable i think that I think that's actually a, it's a strong point against, to my mind, the very naive versions of, of utilitarianism. Um, so the, this type of question also brings us to, I think, questions like uh, uh, invertebrate suffering and, you know, just the vast numbers of insects that, uh, you know, sort of have you know, not great lives. Uh, it, I think a lot of vegans or animal advocates don't extend their sort of circle of consideration to invertebrates. Uh, and it might be like an issue of small minds. 
Uh, do you have a feeling on sort of like, uh, you know, these issues of like, you know, super small minds and vast numbers and, uh, you know, this idea of like uh, the aggregate suffering of something by neuronal count, like uh, these are things that, you know, like the typical Los Angeles vegan is just like uninterested in hearing about, but, uh, you know, for the negative utilitarian, I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, it certainly raises tricky issues, right? Because how are you going to, yeah, just think about this? How are you going to approach it? Especially with beings who are, you know, not just small, but also very different from us in terms of, you know, their, their brain structures, the structures of the brains. And I think ultimately this... It, it does inevitably come down to um, or, or will involve to a great extent a, a kind of framework for how, how are we going to handle large uncertainties mm-hmm. uh, because you can it's, it's certainly fair to argue that we are very uncertain about you know the, the, the sentience of invertebrates and in particular you can perhaps even more reasonably question whether they can experience intense suffering. Um, But of course, like on the other hand, we also have to concede that we are likely to be biased, right? Uh, In in the direction of thinking that, well, surely they can't because, you know, it would be very inconvenient if it turns out that, that they can experience very intense suffering. And so one kind of framework that one might propose, and, and it's certainly a framework that, that can be, you know, reasonably questioned and critiqued, but one kind of framework is to adopt some kind of expected value framework where you, for example, you assign a certain probability that invertebrates can experience very intense suffering. And then, I mean, if you do assume this expected value framework and multiply this probability by the very large number of invertebrates, then it does seem like there is a a very substantial amount of extreme suffering in the invertebrate realm in expectation. And so that's like, that's a very rough way to reason about this. And it's not necessarily, I mean, it's not at all unassailable, but that's something that might be, uh, it might be a, a first step towards trying to, to think about this issue. And of course it then has to be compared with like, so for example, what is our credence in the, uh, possibility of, of like that, that, that fish can experience extreme suffering and like what are their numbers and uh, like also what what can we do about it but all in all I think you probably yeah almost no matter how you um, like regardless of, of the specific probabilities you assign I think it's it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that this is um, a serious issue and, and something that is generally quite neglected. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I encounter when talking about uh, sort of different types of minds versus human minds, the, even with really smart people, is that uh, there's this idea that humans are in some way more capable of suffering because of increased cognitive complexity. But um, I've also heard the argument that basically like with reduced cognitive complexity and sort of reduced problem solving skills, 
um, you would likely require a sort of greater pain signal uh, to come to the same conclusions about like, I need to get out of this situation because it's harming me. Uh, do you have a sense of the current research on this or do you have a stance on this sort of uh, debate? Well, I don't know about current research on, on that in particular. I mean, it's interestingly, it's actually an argument that Richard Dawkins, he made back in 2011 that like, he proposed that you could make a, an evolutionary argument suggesting that, well, actually it's in a sense, you should perhaps expect it to be like negatively correlated with cognitive sophistication. But I mean, I think it, in general, it's worth highlighting that, it, or yeah, to draw a, a distinction between cognitive sophistication on the one hand, and then, you know, the, the intensity of conscious experiences on the other hand. And I mean, so even if we just look at humans, there doesn't actually seem to be a very close connection between the two, right? I mean, it's not that the most intense pains we experience don't necessarily involve anything very uh, complicated in, in terms of, you know, intellectual sophistication. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's in, again, it's, it's a sphere where perhaps we can be um, somewhat deceived by self-serving biases if, if we, you know, it's, it's again very convenient to say that, well, cognitive sophistication must be uh, tied up with, with the, the intensity of suffering, but I don't really think there's much evidence for that. And that's especially relevant when we are considering insects, right? Because, I mean, uh, the, the lack of, this is also a point that I think uh, Richard Ryder, who coined the term speciesism, he's also made this point that perhaps despite the very uh, modest level of, of cognitive sophistication, perhaps insects can still feel pain just as intensely as we can. So mm -hmm. that's certainly interesting to, to consider that possibility. Definitely. Um, so uh, I think it's uh, Andres Gomez Amelison's uh, presentation that I saw this in. He was saying that the, the scale of pleasure and pain he believes is logarithmic. And I think this sort of meshes with like the effective altruist, uh, you know, sort of like bang for your altruistic buck uh, sort of thing that they have going on. Uh, do you do you feel that this is a reasonable assessment of the pain pleasure access that it's logarithmic? So, I mean, it's perhaps worth taking a step back to ask, I mean, in, in the basic, what can you say, like the basic intuition is, is certainly something that I very much agree with, but a more fundamental question is whether suffering and unhappiness, let's say, can even be, is, is it a cardinal quantity or not? And by that, I mean, is it something that we can talk about in terms of assigning a certain size to something like can we say that okay you have an experience of minus five pain does that mean that you can have two of minus five pains and then that is as bad as one minus ten pain and so there is that issue of whether you know different kinds of suffering should they be thought of or yeah the, the continuum of, of suffering can we think of that in terms of a, a cardinal scale or should it perhaps just be uh, 
thought of as being ordinal, as it's called, which just means well, we can order them, but that doesn't mean that you can have this amount of one kind being then, you know, worse than, than another when we scale things up. And um, so, I mean, I, this, this also goes back to the, the point about the, the dust specs. I don't really buy this required uh, cardinality that is um, yeah, also, also kind of implicit in, in the logarithmic scale, or at least if, if you um, yeah, generalize that. But it is true, I think, that the, the worst forms of suffering, they are just so much worse. And uh, yeah, than, than even the even fairly, um, even fairly intense forms of suffering are still so very far from the very, very worst of suffering. And uh, this is something that we tend not to, to really think about. Uh, it's, it's generally out of sight and out of mind for us, like both the, the intense suffering of others, but also our own capacity to suffer in, in mm -hmm. very extreme ways. So, yeah, I mean, so in, in, at, that, at that level, I certainly agree very strongly with uh, Anders' underlying point. Uh, in terms of, like, I, I saw in your Twitter bio that you're just interested in reducing the extreme suffering. What do you think are some uh, of these, like, main sources of extreme suffering that you would like to see uh, taken care of? Right. So if, if we look at the world today, I mean, you could point at, so when it comes to farm animals, for example, you have the fact that I think in the U.S. alone around uh, million chickens are boiled alive each year and so that's well that's that's one quite obvious example in that case and also yeah just off the top of my head also when uh, in the context of farm animals there were i mean it, this actually happens quite frequently unfortunately that um i think it was i saw recently pigs uh, at a farm uh, that they all burned alive in like a big uh, barn or yeah, factory farm. And so that's, yeah, those are clear examples of things that most people should be able to look at and say that's just completely unacceptable. But unfortunately it doesn't, you know, galvanize much um, moral outrage. And, uh, but when it comes to, and of course also still well, not strictly farm animals, but it's, it's generally the way we slaughter fish also tends to involve a lot of extreme suffering because we, for the most part, there isn't really any stunning involved in the process. So they are either left to suffocate to death and sometimes they are also, sometimes they're simply just cut, not in, in a lethal, lethal way, right away at least, and then they just bleed to death slowly and so yeah those are those are just horrible ways to to die and they are also extremely numerous actually so according to some estimates i say what i think yeah it's, it's more than a trillion fish uh, each year that that we kill and, and slaughter so yeah that's uh, that's quite extreme both yeah in, in terms of the intensity and the scale but other than that, of course, you have um, for wild animals being eaten alive is, I think, is 
also an example of something that um, involves at least in many cases extreme suffering and is also something that's quite common in nature um, so yeah um, i guess those are some examples you can point to i mean in, in the human realm there are also this is i think andres yeah he's done uh, quite a bit of research on this uh, cluster headaches for example is, is something is an example of, of very intense suffering that apparently also is is fairly tractable in that there it seems that psychedelics are very effective for a lot of people in terms of ameliorating it and even reducing the attacks preventing them entirely i think for some people um, so i think andres has described this as like uh like i'm not, I'm not as mathematically inclined as the two of you are i think but uh like there's a pareto element to it and uh, so do you feel like with these most extreme forms of suffering in a way it might be like the easiest to deal with like it's sort of like obvious solutions that could have large impacts well I, mean, I think that's, that's true I think that's true in the case of cluster headaches yeah I mean that is something that just seems really um, I mean quite criminal how you know we have these apparently quite effective solutions and we're just not applying them because of very arcane laws or outdated laws. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, uh, I mean, your newest book is uh, Suffering Focused Ethics, and it, this seems fairly in line with like the negative utilitarian view. Is that sort of like roughly in the same ballpark? Yeah, that, that's quite fair to say. Although suffering focused ethics, it's it's a broad, it's a much broader category. Uh, so it, it includes many different views and negative utilitarianism is just one uh, kind of, uh, yeah, narrow part of, of that space of views. And uh, so, and it's not necessarily, negative utilitarianism is not necessarily the most popular view. So I think for example, among academics who defend a, uh, a suffering-focused view, they tend to have more of a, and it, that's quite common among academic philosophers in general, but they tend to embrace more of a pluralist view. So the reduction of suffering will be a very important consequence or a very important component. So there'll be that consequentialist component in the worldview, but nonetheless, they also might assign value or disvalue to other things, whether in a consequentialist way or whether it be in terms of, for example, deontological so-called side constraints that prevent us from doing certain things. So I think that's, that's also something that as a matter of strategy for someone who is a negative utilitarian, it might actually be quite wise to, you know, to present those views because I think at the level of of human psychology to most people they're going to be more palatable those kinds of views because we the kinds of associations that negative utilitarianism gives you know they are for many people it, it's very cold and it's quite um, yeah i mean it just seems quite unacceptable for, for most people i think whereas these these other pluralist views they can be more um, yeah, seem more agreeable to common sense. Mm -hmm. 
because it's worth noting that you know giving importance to the reduction of suffering rather than you know promoting happiness for those who are already well off it's it's a quite widely shared value and it's it's a shame to you know turn people off who would agree with that value by saying that, well, you have to be a negative utilitarian or otherwise it's no good. Right? So I think it's, it's quite good to explore other kinds of views that, that still give uh, you know, strong importance, strong priority to the reduction of suffering. Gotcha. Um, so I, I sort of came into reading about this whole world through like uh, mostly David Pierce and Brian Tomasic. And I'm sort of struck by particularly Brian's, like, you know, the, like you say, the coldness of his approach and uh, like, it's not palatable for many people. For me, I feel like it resonated pretty easily, but uh, this being said, like, to give you a sense of what I do, like I'm, aside from working in coffee, I'm like a, a musician and an artist type. And so like, I feel like I'm in the business of creating, you know, aesthetic value and, um, when I started thinking about a lot of this, I was like, I, I felt like a big shift in my priorities and um, sort of this issue of like, I've dedicated years to studying this thing that's about bringing beauty into the world, but uh, I feel like there's lower moral urgency for that. So where do you feel like, you know, things like art or, um, you know, more like uh, positively oriented things fit into this, uh, you know, sort of colder view yeah i think i should clarify that i think the the coldness that many people see in negative utilitarianism might actually be a bit of a a straw man version of it or you know not necessarily the most sophisticated version of, of negative utilitarianism in terms of what its actual implications would be mm -hmm. because if you are a sophisticated not just negative utilitarian, but consequentialist in general, you do need to take, you know, the realities of human psychology into account. Right. And it is a fact that we do care about and, and do need indeed to have, you know, positive experiences in our lives. We do need to have a sense of safety and, you know, things to look forward to. And that's something that negative utilitarians would only, you know, they would ignore that at their peril because you're never going to inspire people if you don't have, you know, if you don't emphasize that element of life, you know? So I think it's actually quite important that we, I mean, as a negative utilitarian, you can say that you should at least value that stuff instrumentally. You could then also ask, but okay, but isn't there perhaps also some value in it intrinsically? And I mean, I guess, one, one could concede that there's some value in that without conceding that that's a form of value that can necessarily override like the disvalue of extreme suffering. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this uh, producer, uh, this music producer Barker, who did this uh, record based on David Pierce's uh, hedonistic imperative, but he sort of has come to the conclusion that uh, his like, you know, goal in music is to create uh, kind of like, I guess, like valence technology in a way, like, you know, it's something that's supposed to trigger a hedonistic or, you know, it's like for uh, improving somebody's hedonic set point or something along those lines. And I feel like that's an interesting idea, but I'm not sure how much that could con concretely contribute to these, you know, uh, causes. And I'm wondering what can like musicians or artists do in, 
you know, more sort of consequentialist causes that is going to make a concrete impact? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. I mean, I'm not sure, actually. I should perhaps say that I also used to play a lot of music myself. I actually had an ambition of becoming a mus musician like 10 years ago. But I tend to think, I mean, one suggestion might be, okay, maybe you could uh, make some music and have some lyrics about some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't actually think that would work all that well. I think activist music it tends to I, I think it's very difficult to ever make that more than appeal to more than just a certain niche right yeah. I, I think it's it's our appreciation of music is probably tied to certain themes you know you know love songs whether they be happy or the opposite and it, it's, it's very difficult to I think make very popular music that has uh, like a real message um, so, I mean, what one could do, I mean, some in the effective altruist community might argue that if, if one could make music and earn a lot of money off of it, then perhaps it could make sense then to donate. But I mean, perhaps, I don't know, maybe most, the most realistic thing might be to, I mean, again, I mean, I shouldn't be, it, it is quite possible that the, the the guy you mentioned who had made some music in a hedonistic imperative spirit, maybe that can inspire some people. I I, I don't really know, so I I should perhaps just say I'm I'm not sure about it. <laughs> um, yeah, the, I mean the way that you describe putting like lyrics in uh, a song about you know like if you uh, you know make songs about invertebrate suffering, it's gonna be weird. And like there's uh, something about it that's just like seems too persuasive or kind of like uh, almost like propaganda like and uh for somebody that's doing you know more like pure like if somebody's playing jazz like there's it's not gonna work like that i don't think um interesting yeah i this is just something that i've been like sort of wrestling with is like how can i do something of use because you know being uh, a coffee professional and a, a musician it it doesn't really get you the effective altruist sort of funds that you might want to donate <laughs> yeah i mean it, it's it's a good question how one can be creative in in those realms i don't i don't really know i'm i'm not an expert on on either really in terms of of having an impact with it at least um so a few more nitty gritty questions and um uh, then we can like wrap this up. Uh, I'm curious, uh, so, you know, Brian Tomasic talks about some things like uh, suffering per gram and suffering per unit time. Um, do you think that this is a useful way to talk about it? Or do you think it's only a useful way to talk about it within sort of like those who are focused on this type of thing? Yeah, I think there are, again, some considerations back and forth. <clears throat> I mean, I think it can be, it can be quite informative to make calculations of this kind. But then at the same time, I could also be worried about, for example, the signaling effects of these things. So some people, especially if they don't have, you know, a certain consequentialist leaning, they might, well, yeah, I mean, so both if you are 
someone who's an activist, you might be turned off if you see that kind of thing. But it could also to, to people who are newer to these things or people who perhaps haven't heard so much about animal rights. I think to such people, it, or, yeah, it might still, there's a risk that it will reinforce some bad views of, yeah, I mean, in, in, in ethical terms when it comes to, to non-human animals, because it's not how we would really write about, usually at least, uh, in, in, in the case of uh, human suffering and atrocities committed against humans. And I know, I mean, it's not an entirely fair analogy because we are not in a situation where humans are exploited and abused on, on, a, on a similar scale and in similar ways. But I think there, there are still some like uh, in, in, I think it's it's very important to to try to factor in like our, our moral psychology and moral perception and especially how most people think about these things or most people in our audiences, um, because also and 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 these considerations, I think they can tend to speak against making those kinds of calculations, uh, and then in terms of the case for making those calculations, I'm not convinced that, I mean, so for example, you can, you can dispute their validity in many cases, I think. So it's, it's, it's often, I'm, I'm not saying this of anything uh, Brian has written in particular, but, but such numbers will often be quite speculative. And so one question for me, and, and I guess it's, fairly open question is whether it's, it's really worth it to try to make very speculative, well, in my view, speculative calculations that will potentially turn people off. So I don't myself tend to make those kinds of calculations or, or even try. I'm not really, I, I think this is also a, a point that's often made in the effective altruism community that it's probably better generally to take a, um, to have a systemic focus, like to try to focus on creating institutional change. And I think this actually also applies to the kinds of things that we ourselves do. So I think actually something like veganism itself, I think it has fairly powerful signaling effects on other people, but also on our own minds in terms of, I, I think it can strengthen a commitment to, to the cause in a way that something like uh, flexitarianism can't quite uh, do. But of course, I mean, that's, I should also state that I may well be biased here, right? Because I happen to, you know, live a, or at least try to live a vegan lifestyle to the extent possible. Um, and also, I, I hope that you don't think that I'm trying to get you to critique uh, Brian's writings or anything. I, I mean, I think we both admire uh, what he has to say quite a lot. Um, another sort of effective altruist thing that I've seen is this idea of like offsets. And like, I know, uh, like some people will basically decide to not become vegan in favor of donating a bunch of money to animal ethics causes. Uh, and this this type of thing doesn't sit well with me intuitively, even though I get that like theoretically you're offsetting something. Um, but I mean, it just seems like, you know, uh, you could still like, if you have the ability to donate a bunch of money to an animal ethics 
type organization, you still probably have the bandwidth to adjust your own lifestyle. Do you have any thoughts on these sort of offset approaches? Well, I mean, I think it's, it again comes down to, you know, how naive versus sophisticated are we as, as consequentialists? And also how do we think about non-human animals compared to humans? Because offsetting is something that we generally aren't so inclined to, we generally don't find it so appealing when it comes to cases of, of human suffering or exploitation. So like, for example, few people would say that we can just offset, say, cases of, you know, blatant racism or, or even, you know, if, if we're talking about something like child abuse, well, I, I can morally offset that and then it kind of cancels out. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there is some, in the human case, I think there is some wisdom there. And I think it's, it's quite sensible that we don't think in those terms. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a, um, it, it's again, it, it, it comes down to some of the, the more, can I say, like the, the complicated reality of human psychology has to be factored in. And I think our, our emotions do play a big role and they are very important. And if you were, uh, or if, if, if you do behave in ways that are, so if, if you do commit child abuse and then morally upset that or try to, I think that does have a very harmful effect on you as uh, like a moral person. And that is likely to have um, bad effects later down the line and to indeed not be the morally optimal thing. And I would, I'm, I'm not saying these are completely analogous situations, but I would still Raise. I, w- I would still insist on saying that we can't just accept moral offsetting at, at face value, and we can't just say that, well, I did this and this, and so I can pay this much money, and and the end result will be fine. Because I think what we realize in in the human case is that well, the calculation doesn't just end with you know these two things you put on the table. There are you know, downstream effects of, of, of the things that you do. And there is a whole, there's the whole matter of like, what are the, the moral attitudes, the moral views that you are reinforcing with this whole way of acting and thinking. And I think, again, back to this thing about the, the systemic and the institutional focus and how we're going to create change at that level. I think it is probably going to take more a, a, a change in mindset and attitude actually than it's going to take necessarily um, more money donated. I mean, especially if you are someone who is an influential, effective altruist, I think the, the biasing effect that, well, certainly I would expect, but also that is suggested by various studies, the biasing effect that it, it has to, to eat animal products you know, on, on one's mind and in particular one's, you know, uh, view of, of non-human animals in ethical terms. I think that could be far worse. I mean, it, that, that could be a really, really um, large sum of money that you would have to pay, like in the final consequentialist analysis to really make up for that. 
because I think this is something I've seen quite a lot that people report after perhaps a month or two of, of being vegan. There's, you know, that change in perception where you do suddenly, perhaps you could before kind of pay lip service to there being an atrocity going on, but, you know, suddenly it's kind of much, much deeper and you really feel it. And it's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's a whole other thing at that point. And um, I think that change in thinking or perhaps rather in, in attitude that can be really significant. And it's, and it's, one should not underestimate that and say that, well, it's just, it, it would be a large amount of money. I think one would have to, to pay to make up for that. Well, um, so uh, last couple of questions I have basically like, uh, I think that to deal with this type of stuff, you have to have a certain disposition and like, you know, obviously like people like you or Brian or, you know, like, uh, you know, bigger figures like Peter Singer have a disposition to sort of engage with this. And, uh, you know, a lot of people just don't want to even think about suffering. And so I'm curious how much your sort of ability to, you know, know about this stuff has grown like is it something that you've had to cultivate or do you feel like you just sort of uh have the disposition from the get-go or like uh how much have you sort of changed over the course of your uh, career in this well that's a very interesting question i don't think i've ever thought about that um i mean i think i've i've had a very gradual path you could say and that I started out very much as a classical utilitarian and I was actually primarily focused on happiness like human happiness in particular mm -hmm. and so I, I gradually updated my views and I think some of those updates they have certainly been quite painful it's fair to say so you know when you start to um, consider non-human animals as well and you live in a world that generally doesn't very much that's certainly that's very difficult and um, to and and it can it can have it can have a, a big psychological effect now and the same applies i think to yeah i mean the the, the update i've made in terms of prioritizing suffering and seeing that as, you know, being the most important thing. I think that's also something that it can feel quite dark. You know, in, in one sense, you could say just like it's, it's, it's um, challenging in, in two different ways because partly it's, it's challenging to be confronted with suffering and, and to think about that. Um, that. That can be, you know, that can be kind of a, a painful empathy there but also at a more cognitive level to have a, a worldview that's very much centered on the reduction of suffering is, can also be difficult because it's not necessarily as inspiring as, you know, we might, we might prefer to have our worldview be, right? We might want to have something that gives us like a positive vision and something to look forward to. So that's another sense in which it can be quite difficult. So I think, I mean, I guess it's, it's fair to say that I've, I've moved very gradually and, and probably adapted very gradually to some, yeah, I mean, uh, what can I say? Dark truths in a way. 
Gotcha. Um, there's, I mean, I feel like in the way that uh, you speak, like there's like a almost sort of like spiritual element in an extremely non-spiritual way. Um, you, do you feel like any sort of, I mean, like, I, I imagine that you aren't religious, but uh, is there any sort of spiritual element to this that you've cultivated? It's, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I think it's, I guess the term spiritual, it means different things for different people, right? I think many people associate it with, with something supernatural or superstitious. And I mean, I certainly don't endorse spirituality in that kind of sense. But I mean, if, if we're talking about spiritual in the sense of being contemplative and, you know, something that's wholly secular and, and detached from superstition, then, I mean, I would say I'm very spiritual in that sense and do practice meditation. I think that can actually be a very helpful tool in terms of, like, both in terms of cultivating concentration and, you know, being able to handle stress, but also actually to cultivate compassion. And that's another, like, secret tool that's probably very useful for someone who's trying to reduce suffering and working toward that end because compassion meditation has been shown to actually increase people's ability to handle suffering. So not only to increase people's motivation to reduce the suffering of others, but also even to, to, to yeah, better handle it and even to feel more positive effect in the face of suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's actually ultimately desirable. And, and so this is a, an, an important distinction that's also drawn by psychologists. There's that between effective empathy and then compassion where, you know, if, if you are empathetic and you're confronted with suffering and you feel empathy, that's actually a very painful state. And perhaps more importantly, it's not a state that really enables you to act and do something about it at least if it's a very strong sense of empathy, whereas compassion is, is quite different. It's in, in a sense, it's more emotionally detached, but it's, it's even more effective when it comes to doing something about it, because there is, I think it's, it's even the common definition of compassion is that it's the desire to see someone else's suffering alleviated and, and to do something about it. And so it's, it's more action oriented and, and much less painful if it's even painful at all. So I think that's, that's kind of a hack there that it's worth trying to, to cultivate compassion more and actually to, because I think some people make the mistake of thinking that I should be more empathetic. And so in that way, we can kind of have a, a higher order, like a, a certain cognitive layer can kind of try to boost our empathy and trying to say, this is the good thing. Whereas perhaps it's actually not, it might actually, I'm not saying empathy doesn't have its place. I think it's a very good thing. It certainly does have its place, but it's, it should be like kept in like the, perhaps the, at an optimum, right? Which is some kind of, I guess the golden mean is what to aim for there. And, and to then more boost the compassion. That's great. Um, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, is the best place to buy your uh, new book through your blog or where should people find uh, Suffering Focused Ethics? Yeah, all of my books are available for free so they can be found through my yeah my website uh, magnuswinding.com you can find all my books there and read them yeah.
Awesome. And I'll, I'll link to some of that stuff, like the animal ethics uh, uh, videos that you mentioned. And um, yeah, thanks so much for joining me, Magnus. This is a, a good talk. Thanks for having me, John. It was a pleasure.